Okay, today is January the 18th, 2011. I don't know why I'm waiting for applause after I do that. <laughs> Whenever I get it right. Okay, uh, let's prepare ourselves this evening in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness, providing everything we need. You know what we need before we even ask. And you are the Jehovah Jireh, the great provider. So we thank you for that. And pray that you will help us to focus on your mighty word this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You'll probably notice that they've, they're still bringing up what happened in Tucson, Arizona, which they're calling a tragedy. Just some jerk went berserko and killed a lot of people needlessly. And there were a couple of things I've been waiting to develop since then. Looks like both of them are in the process of developing. One of them is that they are going to try to, what they call, tone down the public discourse. As if it's the public's discourse, just us talking to one another, may be behind what happened there. That can be translated probably into more stringent political correctness being enforced. One way they do that is through hate crime laws, which probably will be uh, more stringent. And we also could anticipate more gun control. They're already talking about having magazines that hold three or four bullets less. Anyway, um, that's the unfortunate thing when someone uh, goes berserko and starts killing people. Everyone else has to suffer. And... The idea that there's a possibility of him getting off because he was uh, mentally off is ludicrous as far as the Bible is concerned. We are responsible for our actions. This isn't even, wasn't something that was done in the heat of anger. It was premeditated. It had been coming on for some time. And some people will say, well, he had a screw loose. Well, so what? God holds us responsible. <coughs> Excuse me for using our volition in a negative way. Remember when the serpent deceived Eve? She was really deceived. She believed what he said. But God still held her responsible for, for it and judged her. So we have a lot of opportunity to apply doctrine nearly daily in our society. And this is just a few observations I had. Um, I was actually going to speak about that a, about a week ago, but um, other things came up and I was addressing other issues. But that's something that you can anticipate. Surely that's where they're going. And it is hot in here. I, I don't know what I can do. Okay. All right. We are in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And we've been looking at the second advent in great detail. 
looking at an article by Arnold Frutenbaum, the eight stages of the campaign of Armageddon culminating in the second advent of Jesus Christ. So what I've done is just distilled what we've gone over just by headings to bring us up to speed. We're going to look at the sixth stage very quickly. There's something that I added to that. Then we'll look at the seventh and eighth stage of this article. And then I have kind of a summary, another thing we'll take a look at. So here is the campaign of Armageddon, second coming of Jesus, the Messiah, in the stages. Now this is according to Arnold Frutenbaum's article. The first one, the first stage is the assembling of the armies or allies of the Antichrist. Of course, if we're going to have a huge campaign go on over there between the forces of darkness and the forces of light, then this is one of the things that Antichrist has to do is assemble all the forces. And he's going to use coercion. He's going to use uh, what appears to be supernatural things to convince the people to join him in this endeavor. But they all are going to gather in the Valley of Armageddon. It doesn't appear that there's going to be a battle there, but then they're going to move out from there, disperse, go to Jerusalem, go to Basra and other places. The second stage is the destruction of Babylon. Now, I've been saying something, and it might be a little bit misleading, so I want to clarify it tonight. When we go to Revelation chapter 17 and 18, this is where the Bible is talking about Babylon. And I said that the first three and a half years is what you could designate as religious Babylon because this is when it is going to be in line with the endeavor of Antichrist to have it so. There will be a one-world religion. But at the midpoint, then that religion is going to be set aside. Antichrist is going to use his forces for that to be destroyed. But I'm afraid I might have, might have given the impression that that ended that aspect of Babylon and the religious Babylon. And it does end that part of it, but actually you still have a religious Babylon after that, only now it's Antichrist who demands worship. And so that religious Babylon continues, as does political and economic Babylon, one world government, one world economy and one world religion is going to continue until right at the end when Christ returns, only it's going to be different than what was the first three and a half years with the one world religion under what, I don't know, some people and I kind of lean this way that the Catholic Church has something to do with this one world religion by the descriptions, but I'm not dogmatic about that. But there is going to be a one world religion that is going to face the demise at the halfway point of the tribulation. There will continue to be a one world religion, but it will switch. Now the allegiance and worship is going to have to go towards the Antichrist. So I wanted to clarify that so you wouldn't think that that part of the one world religion is over at the midpoint. That aspect of it is, but it changes colors and then it continues until Christ takes care of it at the second advent. I was looking at some articles that were that was talking about Babylon and 
Um, Babylon, if, if you want to do a, a research and just do a study, if you start researching the way Babylon is used in the Bible, it's fascinating. It starts way back in the uh, book of Genesis, Tower of Babel and all that. And then it, throughout history, it has a, a negative connotation. And there is discussion in some of the, the prophecy books and in Revelation whether Babylon is really going to be a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates or whether it is talking about an, a, a movement that is called Babylon. And there are arguments on both sides. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to jump into that. But I'm just letting you be aware that that is discussed. And whether it's going to be a literal city on the banks of the Euphrates that God is going to de destroy, I am not, at, I can't definitively speak to that one way or the other at this point. But the, the, the fact that Babylon is going to be a, a big player all the way up to the end is certainly uh, shown in Scripture. The third stage of the campaign of Armageddon is the fall of Jerusalem. But when we talk about the fall of Jerusalem, it's not the entire city. It looks like about half of the city, or maybe a little more than that, is going to fall into Antichrist's control. Remember, they're going to gather in the Valley of Armageddon, which is approximately 100 miles from Jerusalem. And the forces are going to move down into Jerusalem, and they're going to take most of it. Two-thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. One-third are going to be able to hold out because of the supernatural things that are going to be taking place. God is going to protect his people. And then it's going to dawn on Antichrist and his forces that there is a huge pocket of Jews over in the Basra area. That's in Edom. That's where Petra is located. They're there because God had instructed them at the midpoint of the tribulation during the uh, abomination of desolation not to return to their homes but to flee. Satan is going to be in a panic. He knows that his time is very short and he may consider his only hope is to annihilate the Jews. He's been doing, trying to do that ever since Abraham fathered the Jewish race. But he is going to be on all cylinders full speed ahead at this point because he knows that if he can annihilate the Jews, then God has lost the angelic conflict because God has given unconditional covenants, promises to the Jews that have not yet been fulfilled. And if Satan, using Antichrist, however he can do it, can wipe out the Jews, God cannot fulfill his promise. That's one reason he is after the Jews big time. And as we see the whole world moving again in the direction of anti-Semitism, it should cause the the chills to hit you from time to time because this means it's getting closer and closer. There's been uh, times that anti-Semitism has been more profound than others, but it's never gone away. But it's going to be at its peak at the fall of Jerusalem. The fourth stage is the armies of Antichrist at Basra. <coughs> so after they have they're put a holding force at Jerusalem, and then drop down into Bosnia, excuse me, Basra, and they're going to take on the Jews and Christians, anyone who helps the Jews, 
And what they're, find, what they're going to find out is they're going to take none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. They're going to bite off way more than they can chew. They're going to rule the day that they did that, but that's what's going to happen. So the armies of Antichrist are going to go where the Jews are located, and that's at Basra. And when we get into the sixth uh, stage, we're going to see who those Jews are. And we're going to see that they came from Judah and they're living in tents and all that is significant. The fifth stage is the national regeneration of Israel. I love it when Christ left. He didn't go back up into heaven and plead with Israel, Oh, please take me back. Not hardly. He said, I will not, You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will cry out for him. And here's the message. This, this clears up a lot of what goes on during this time is that God has to go to this ultimate stage before the Jews are going to be softening their heart, recognizing that Jesus Christ is their only hope and deliverer. It's got to get to that point. And that's sad. And even then, not all of them will. But they are, there is going to be a national regeneration of Israel. They're going to look, and look for and accept their Messiah, Jesus Christ. The sixth stage is actually the second coming of Messiah. And because that's so misunderstood, we've got two phases of it, or at least two things that we address. The first one is the place of his second coming. Where is Christ going to return when he comes back to planet Earth? Most people don't know, but a few would guess that it's going to be the Mount of Olives. That's where he left. And he's going to come back the same way he left, but the Bible does not say that he's going to come back to the same place that he left. Now, it makes sense that when Antichrist goes down into the area of uh, Basra, that the Jews are between, <laughs> literally between a rock and a hard place. They need deliverance because Antichrist is going to put a siege around them. And so Jesus Christ is going to come and break that siege. But the place, and we have scriptures, we'll go through a couple of those before we press on, that Jesus Christ, when he returns to planet Earth, is going to go to the city of Basra in that area where the Jews are holding out. And you, have you ever, do you remember the movies? When I was a little boy, I loved to watch uh, Fort Apache. I even had a little uh, fort. They, they had the log walls and the, and the places inside and the little plastic guys and the, and the Indians outside. And I used to play that. And literally when I was playing, the Indians were about to win the day. And out of nowhere you heard... Here comes a column to save the day. Well... I don't guess that's going to be played. There's going to be a trumpet sound. Jesus Christ is going to come back and save the day. And uh, that is the manner of his second coming, the way that he's coming back. You know, he came in his first incarn in his incarnation, the first time he came to, to earth uh, as a, a human and incarnate, he was coming as a child. And he was the Lamb of God. Well, I don't care what you do to a lamb. You can't make a lamb fierce, scary looking to where you'd ever would be dread of being around a lamb. 
I mean, they're just poor critters that uh, they're just, they don't threaten anyone. Uh, Probably the lamb is one, one, if not the most defenseless, defenseless animals that God created. And they're stupid. They can't find water. Uh, I don't know, maybe a turkey might be in the same area. I heard that if turkeys look up during a rainstorm that they can drown, and they'll just look up until they fill up and, you know, tump over. I don't know what they do. But anyway, he came as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world because he came as a sacrifice. That was the main sacrifice. The mainstay was lambs. However, a lot of people picture him that way, and that's all they know about the sweet little baby Jesus and the Lamb of God. But if they would keep reading, they would find out that he's coming back as a lion. He is from the tribe of Judah, which the symbol of the tribe of Judah is a lion. I have never faced a lion out in the wild. I've seen a few in the zoo and I had no interest in getting over that rail and going in there and inducing myself to them because they, even when they're laying there, uh, they're pretty ferocious-looking critters. So he's going to come back as the Lion of Judah, and he is going to... I keep saying he's going to take care of business. But as I read, continue to study this, I am overwhelmed at the gore and the horrible, unbelievable carnage that is going to be on this earth. I'm talking about millions of people. I'm talking about blood everywhere uh, taking months and months in order to bury the bodies, what's left, because the birds are going to feast. All the uh, animals are going to... it's, It's just going to be... You can't even begin to... Especially in our society. You know, we live in a pristine, very uh, sterile environment. Kids don't even know what it's like to kill a chicken and to take the feathers off and to gut it and to skin it, do all these things in order to cook it. To them, a chicken is what's in a nice little neat package. It's got cellophane on it. You don't even have to touch it. And you go home and, well... Let me, let, me re, let me take that back. Most kids see chicken when it's in a bucket at Colonel Sanders. Most of them don't even see it uncooked and wouldn't know how to cook it if their life depended on it. That's the way a lot of them are. Uh, to them, a chicken is chicken nuggets. The reason, what I'm trying to say is we are so divorced from reality with the, things, the way things really are. It wasn't that long ago when people understood what it was to be around blood and gore. If nothing else, just any time they had meat, they had to have their elbows up in blood in order to process it. But that's not the way it is today. I don't know how many people, especially teenagers, that even know how to clean a fish or how to dress out a deer, or clean a rabbit, or anything else. Especially the girls. Hey, that's gross. You know, that's the idea. And I think it's a good idea. I showed my daughter how to fix a flat tire, and to shoot a gun, oh, she didn't want to shoot. Oh, that's I'm afraid of guns and all that. Now, I don't know if it's stuck or not, but at least she, she, can, she can have memories of what she went through to do it. 
How are you going to survive if you don't have those kind of skills? When people say, oh, well, we don't need to do that today. We're a sophisticated society. We have high tech. We have all that. We never know what's ahead. Now, I said all this to make this point. If you take someone that is that in that sterile an environment, what are they going to do if Jesus, if Jesus Christ comes to take his bride and the tribulation begins and they start seeing all this carnage and gore, suffering like there has never been before? I know you've, you know the verses that that's going to be the worst time there ever was or ever will be. But when you start reading these prophets and you start reading when Christ comes the second advent, what's going to take place? It makes you shudder. Of course, we're not going to be there. We're not going to, well, we're going to see the end when Christ comes and, and takes care of all this. But this is, a, this is something that is beyond the imagination of most people, especially teenagers. They have no concept of what it's like to have blood on your hands. Even in modern-day warfare, I'm sure that, that combat is always a, a, a terrible thing. I mean, it's just, even if you're shooting someone that's 300 yards away, there's still an, an, an emotional element in it, and sooner or later you're going to see blood and you're going to see gore. But it used to be when you had thousands of foot soldiers with nothing more than uh, spears and axes and swords just clash. Can you imagine what it was like to be in it? But furthermore, after it was over, thousands upon thousands of bodies and blood and body parts and just gore. I'm trying to describe what it's going to be like when Jesus Christ comes back. He's not going to negotiate and he does not have a weak stomach. And the, the Bible does an excellent job of explaining what's going to happen. Remember I took you last time to the, what's going to happen to Antichrist? Christ is going to rip him open from thigh to neck and he will not even be buried. He's, his body is just going to be tossed out and the, the uh, animals will have its, their way with him. Now I know that this isn't a pleasant subject. But we've got to get over it if we're squeamish about it because we have to realize this is what has to be done in order for Jesus Christ to begin his reign because there's not going to be any nonsense in his reign. There's not going to be all the evil that is pervasive around us today. And the ones who are in power all over the world in every area and category are not going to give up that power they're not going to quit abusing people until Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the righteous and just one, is going to come back and he is going to use force that the world has never even seen in order to set things straight. And it will be set straight. Now, isn't that good news? I've given you some of the gore, but the good news is Jesus Christ is, he's already won the, the victory. It's just a matter of time running its course and at one time, he's going, when we get to the eighth stage, he will ascend to the top of, of the uh, Mount of Olives in victory. The seventh stage is the battle from Basra to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jesus Christ is going to return at the valley, or excuse me, at, at Basra, and he is going to start. All he has to do is speak, and there's nothing but carnage. And they're going to retreat all the way back to Jerusalem. 
which is, a, what is it, 50 miles, something like that, to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, the Valley of Jehoshaphat and the Kindred Valley are essentially the same. It's right outside the walls of Jerusalem. And that's going to be right towards the very end. And whoop, went too far. Then the eighth stage is the victory ascent on the Mount of Olives. Those are the eight stages according to Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum of how this is going to go down. And I've, I've really relished this because I've never got it in such detail and it never really clicked because I've never had anybody really explain in detail where he's coming back. I always assumed it was going to be the Mount of Olives. But that's not what the Bible says. See, when you get something and it doesn't jive with what you've always, always believed, what do you do? You don't say, well, I don't like him because uh, whatever. No. You go and you're good Bereans. You go and say, what does the Scripture say? And that's what we're doing. We're looking at the Scriptures. So that's a rundown of where we were. We've been up to the seventh stage, and we're going to begin now in a little closer look at the sixth stage. There's one thing there that I had left out, and so I'm going to start there in the sixth stage. Remember, the, the sixth stage has to do with the second coming of Messiah. This is when he's, and where is he going? He's going to Basra, and we looked at the way that he's coming, the manner of his coming. That's, by the way, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 through 18, describes his coming, what he's going to look like, and what, what is he going to be wearing. And, uh, <coughs> that's the manner of his coming. Now, this is the part in the sixth stage that I added. It's right at the end. And so you haven't seen this yet, so we'll just park here for a moment. So at the sixth stage of the campaign of Armageddon, Jesus will return at the request of Israel and enter into battle with the Antichrist and his armies. With his return to the remnant of Israel in Basra, he will indeed save the tents of Judah before saving the Jews of Jerusalem. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 7. Zechariah. Zechariah is really close to the New Testament. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Or if you're Italian, it's Malici. And Zechariah comes right before that, and we're looking at chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. We've looked at Zechariah chapter 12, the first six verses before, but you may not remember them or you might not be able to put it in perspective, so let's just read verses 1 through 7 anyway. Zechariah 12, 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel 
Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around when the siege is against Jerusalem. Now, what, what, what does that read us into right off the bat? The siege is around Jerusalem. That means that when they came from the Megiddo, the uh, Armageddon, you could call it, Valley of Megiddo, there's going to be a siege put around Jerusalem. I said that that's the holding force. They're not going to let anybody out. Nobody goes in. And then they're going to move down to Basra. But there's going to be a siege put there because they can't just completely take it. God's not going to allow them to do it. So that when the siege is around, uh, against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. What does that mean? Well, we're going to see that Judah normally is, you have Jerusalem here, and Judah is southern part of Israel. But as we're going to see, the siege that's going to be around Judah isn't where they're normally located. Judah has left. They've gone over into Basra to try to flee from uh, the tyranny of the Antichrist. And they're going to be living in tents because that's not where they normally live. But there's going to be a siege there also. You got that? Siege around Jerusalem, holding force, go down to Basra, going to put a siege there. And that's where those from Judah are going to be. Verse 3, And will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, this is very easy to see what the time frame is. Has that ever happened before? No. It's yet future. We've never had all the nations of the earth gathered around Jerusalem in a siege, but it's going to happen. And it says that God is going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone that anybody who tries to, to pick it up is going to be severely injured. In other words, he is going to supernaturally protect his people and I submit to you that he's been doing that ever since 1947, May 14th, 19, excuse me, 1948. He has been supernaturally protecting his people, and he's going to do it especially at the height of uh, Satan and his tyranny. Verse 4, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike the horses with bewilderment and the rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the people with blindness. Then the clans of Judah, remember we looked at this once before, I'm just refreshing your memory. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. When, the, when they are down in Basra and they get word that the Jews are still holding out under the siege that is put around them by all the nation, that gives them hope. That's a, that gives them uh, a support to think, well, if they can do it, God is protecting them. He's going to protect us also. Verse 6, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem, again, dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. 
Now, you probably already have clans underlined because I said the word there, the Hebrew word is aluf, A-L-L-U-P-H, and it should be it can be translated governors. This is not Old Testament times. If anybody, if anybody goes here and tries to say that this, this is already taking place, if you're a preterist, it means that you think all prophecy has already taken place and this is probably taking place somewhere way back there, B.C. It just isn't so. If that was the case, they would be called kings. They weren't called governors back then. Furthermore, you don't have all the nations of the earth surrounding Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been taken several times by different nations, but never by all the nations of the earth at one time. That will only take place at this juncture of the tribulation. Verse 7. The Lord also will save the tents, underlying tents. The Lord will also, will also uh, save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. So, what does this tell us? Judah is going to be delivered before Jerusalem. Even though Jerusalem is going to get the first siege, God is going to protect them. Antichrist is going to move down to Basra, put a siege there. That's where Judah is living in tents. You see, if they were still living in Judah, they wouldn't be living in tents, they'd be living in houses. But they fled and they just have makeshift, makeshift encampments, tents, whatever they can, temporary housing. And that's why he says he is going to uh, deliver the tents. Now he says, and the glory of the house of David. What does David have to do with Judah? Where is David from? What's his tribe? The tribe of Judah. And who is Jesus Christ? Son of David. See, there's all a plan and a pattern to... Everything that's said here is for our purpose. And so those who live in Jerusalem, where the temple is, and so much is going to be going on, can't say, well, God took care of us first and because we have ascendancy over others. No, He's going to go down and take care of the, those dwelling in tents from Judah tribe of David first, and then he's going to go and take care of Jerusalem. And it even tells us that right here. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it just goes on. It's talking about how fierce these holdout, one-third of the Jews that are still left, are going to be indefeatable or undefeatable, whichever one is right. They, they, they are going, because God is going to see to it. Okay, back up here to our notes. He will indeed save the tents of Judah first before saving the Jews of Jerusalem. The term tents point to the temporary abodes rather than the permanent dwellings. The fact that Judah is living in tents shows that Judah is not home in Judah but temporarily elsewhere. That elsewhere is Basra since the Messiah will save the tents of Judah first. This too shows 
that the initial place of his return will be Basra and not the Mount of Olives. Now that completed our sixth stage. The seventh stage has to do with the battle of Basra to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Well, by the way, what, I, what you see here in italics, I'm quoting from that article that I found from Dr. Frutenbaum. He says, while the battle between Messiah and Antichrist will begin at Basra, it will apparently continue all the way back to the eastern walls of Jerusalem, which overlook a section of the Kidron Valley, which is also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The key passage is Joel 3, verse 12 through 13. So let's go to Joel. Joel is, by the way, right after Hosea. Joel chapter 3. Joel chapter 3, verse 12. Let the nation... Nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. God is bringing them there. Antichrist is just playing into God's hands. God isn't going to go all over the globe and just in piecemeal here and there take care of these people who are in league with Antichrist. He's going to bring them all there, not all of them, there's still going to be people scattered out around the world, but the armies are going to be there. He's not going to have to go out and deal with them. He's bringing them there. And that's what we see in verse 12. All the surrounding nations, verse 13. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Where is the valley of decision? That's another name for the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kindred Valley. These are these evil armies that are trying to defeat Christ and His people. For the day of the Lord is near in the Valley of Decision. The sun and the moon grow dark. We'll go over that again, that part later. So, this has to do with the Kindred Valley. Now back up here to the notes. Jesus Christ will easily dispense with Antichrist. Hebrews 3, 13 through B and 2 Thessalonians 2 through 8. We went over that. That's where he's going to rip him apart from thigh to neck. Well, here we have it in 13B. I have it. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. And he won't be... Remember we went through this in Isaiah chapter 14. The Bible even describes what's going to happen to the soul of Antichrist when he gets down into torments. And it also describes what happens, what happens to his body as it continues to be on, on the uh, surface of the earth. We went over that last time. So, and then I have 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.8. Then, the then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end the appearance of his coming. And this, this is where we went to Isaiah 14, 1 through 21. Y'all remember that? It's got the five I wills in it, and it describes all about Satan. I think we'll just 
go past all this because we've gone through all this already. Now, the eighth, we're at the eighth and final stage of the uh, Armageddon campaign and the second advent. So, after the actual fighting is completed, there will be a victory ascent up the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 3 through 8. We were just there in Zechariah. Let's go there because this is going to describe the victory ascent. Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 3. Well, we could start with verse 2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. That's when they, when they first come down from the valley of Armageddon. It's describing what's going to take place, but look, it's only half of it. The rest of them are holding out. And so they go down to Basra, and then the Lord returns and chases them all the way back to Jerusalem, to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and this is where he, he takes care of them. Verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And in that day the feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Now, very closely, number 4, I want you to notice something. It says, or number 3, first of all in verse 3 it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights on a day of battle. In chronological order, what we have here is the fighting going on first. You see that? In fact, we're going to see that the fighting is done by the time he goes up the Mount of Olives. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This is after the battle has already been fought, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives, will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other towards the south. So we're going to see more about this, what's going to happen when he gets to the top. Talk about all hell breaking loose. It already has during the tribulation, but when this, in this eighth stage, what he's talking about takes place, the earth's topography is going to change. It's going to be unbelievable. Well, I shouldn't say unbelievable. It's believable but it just shocks you to see what's going to take place on this last eight stage. Now, this passage is often used as evidence that the second coming will initially take place on the Mount of Olives, but it needs to be studied more carefully, especially in the light of other passages. Jehovah is first seen as going forth to fight against the nations that have gathered against the Jews in verse 3. It's only after the fighting of verse 3 that his feet stands on the Mount of Olives. I want you to make sure you notice that. And then, along with this victory ascent upon the Mount of Olives, a number of cataclysmic events will occur as the Great Tribulation comes to an end. These cataclysmic events will be a result of the seventh bowl judgments. Now remember, the seventh, you have the first of all the seven sealed judgments, then you have the seven trumpet judgments, and the last is the seventh 
bold judgments. Sometimes they're called vile judgments, pouring out as a out of a bowl, God's wrath. This is the seventh one. This is the end one, the last one that's going to take place. So let's go to Revelation chapter 16. Talk about some vivid description. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. Revelation 16, 17. If you have a pericope, which is a title in this section of your scriptures, some Bibles have them and some don't. Mine says, Seventh Bowl, Widespread Destruction, verses uh, 17 through 21. Revelation 16, 17. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And then there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there was a great earthquake such as there has never been since man came, and came to be upon the earth. So great the earthquake was, it was, and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wrath of his fierce anger. Now it appears that this, this city that is uh, split into three parts is going to be Babylon. It's going to be split apart. And he's talking about remembering his wrath. And look at verse 20. And every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And the huge hailstones this is part of the seventh bowl. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, I've got to do a little explaining here. I said, after he goes to the valley of Jehoshaphat, it appears that when... Let me backtrack just a second. It appears that when Jesus Christ comes at Basra, the things I've been studying, it appears that he dispenses with Antichrist there. Antichrist is going to be split open. He's going to chase the forces back to the valley of the Kindred Valley, Valley of Jehoshaphat. He's going to annihilate those armies there, and then he's going to go up to the Mount of Olives. When he gets to the top of the Mount of Olives, there's going to be an earthquake like there has never been before. It says that islands fled away and there's no more mountains, at least probably not like there has been in the past. But when we get, I was a little confused. I thought, well, okay, I understand all that, but what about the hailstones? That sounds like he's still battling or pouring out wrath. He's defeated all the armies there in the valley of the Kindred Valley. But there's still unbelievers all over the earth that are had sided with Antichrist, and evidently this earthquake. It, I don't, I, I'm, I'm speculating a bit here, but I think I'm on pretty solid ground. It could affect the entire globe, and that when when the cities around the earth are in rubble because of this earthquake, he finishes them off with hundred-pound hailstone hailstones. Now, all of this could be described in what we were in 
our study in First Thessalonians that we were calling the what? Baptism of fire. This is describing the baptism of fire. This is how God... It, fire re always has to do with judgment in the Bible. And when Jesus Christ returns, every unbeliever on earth is going to be wiped out, sent to torments, waiting the great white throne. We know that. But now we're getting details. You, you, you see the you're connecting dots here. This is a vivid description of the baptism of fire, of how God is going to do it. And so when he goes in victory, he has annihilated the armies in the valley of Jehoshaphat. He ascends the Mount of Olives in victory. And when he gets there, this hellacious earthquake occurs. Rubble everywhere, possibly around the world, because he's going to deal. Every unbeliever on planet Earth is gone. They're going to be killed. And if there's any of them that survive the rubble, can you imagine? If Look what happened in Haiti and these other places. These, these are just a little nuisance compared to the, this earthquake. And you're climbing out of rubble, and the next thing you know, there's 100-pound hailstones falling everywhere. But this is the one thing I want you to note. Look at verse 21. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And look at this. You, you would think they would be humbled by then? Do you think by then they would find out that their arms were too short to box with God? Look what they do. And the men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. It never dawns on them, hey, maybe these Jews, these Messianic Jews and these Christians had it right, that Jesus really was the Son of God. They're, they are eternally bitter and hardened. That's one reason when we get back to our verse in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it's talking about there's going to be eternal destruction, eternal punishment for these unbelievers because they will eternally be bitter and hardened. There are some children, there are some people that way that you have to grind them to a fine powder before they finally become humble. And there are some that will never be humble. And the Jews had a remedy for that. Those that refused to be humbled, incorrigible children, were to experience what we would call the sin unto death. They would be executed. Because, and there are, there are children, there are people in our society that are so hardened, they are so arrogant, they hate God and grace so much, that no matter what God would bring in their life to humble them, they will never be humble. They will just curse God, blaspheme Him, and be all the more hardened and hate Him all the more rather than this being a humbling process. You see it here? So this eighth stage is, is a big deal. Another cataclysm event will take place at this time. And uh, is, is, it's a worldwide blackout we see in Matthew 24, 29, and Joel 3, 14, and 17. Let's see. Let's go to Matthew is the closest. Let's go to Matthew. In conjunction with this, this earthquake, uh, go to Matthew chapter 24. Let's 
Verse 29. Jesus Himself is saying this. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, when does this happen? Look at the next verse. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now this, from the context, this sounds like it's not going to be necessarily in conjunction with the earthquake. But when Jesus Christ returns at Basra and they see him coming. You, you know that Revelation 19 is describing his descent. And we have it here also. But when it says that, that uh, it's going to be darkened, this is probably going to be one of the strategies that Jesus Christ used to confound his enemies. All he's got to do is strike them blind and they're done. So there, there, you have a darkness there. Now go to Joel chapter 3 again. We were in Joel a minute ago. Some of you are going to think, well, I need a bookmark. Joel, I'll give you time to get there. <clears throat> Excuse me, Joel, chapter 3. Remember, we went there a while ago, but we didn't finish it. Joel 3:14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. And the Lord roars from Zion and, utter, and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. The Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass uh, through it no more. So uh, this is another thing that is con connection with when He takes care of the armies at Jerusalem and then sends, ascends to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to show you one thing. Uh, uh, that finishes, by the way, my whole article by uh, Arnold Frutenbaum in all eight stages. But I'm just going to give you a glimpse of what's for next time that will help you. Uh, I, if your head is a little bit reeling from all this, I've tried to simplify it. And I have, I'm just going to show you one quick thing here. Um, this is what I, I have. An, I put in an outline, simplified a bridge form of what we just looked at. But I added one thing to it at the beginning, and I'm going to close on this. And I don't hardly have any time. I'll go over this again, but I just wanted to introduce it to you. Actually, the first stage of all this taking place is bringing Israel back into the land. Remember, I said that. Israel has to be there because that's where all the there's going to be battles taking place. Israel has to be a nation before uh, the tribulation even begins because Antichrist is going to make a treaty with the nation of Israel. They have to be in the land. They have to be a nation and so forth. 
So I just wanted to show you this. Um, preparations for the second advent. One of the preparations is Israel regathered. 1914 uh, B.C., by, uh, uh, they were exiled out of the land of Egypt, uh, excuse me, out of the land of Canaan into Egypt. Remember, uh, Abraham went to the land of Canaan and the Jews dwelt there. There was a drought and you had Joseph move into uh, Egypt and he became second in command and then they lived, they, they were eventually put into bondage for 430 years. And so they were regathered back to a, to a nation from there in 1445 B.C. Then in 722 B.C., the Assyrian captivity, this were the, two nar the ten tribes. They had already split by this time, northern and southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom uh, was ex exiled out of the land and were never regathered. They just assimilated into different areas. They didn't regather. So there's no... In 586 B.C., uh, they were... Uh, went into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. This was the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, which are the same. This happened in 586 B.C. And then they regathered back from Babylon to, into the land in 516 B.C. And each time you had one country that they were uh, exiled from and then they came back. However, between 586 and the next or exiled out of the land was in 70 A.D., this is when the Romans came in and it's called the Great Diaspora or, or Diaspora, however you want to pronounce it. This is when God uh, had the fifth cycle of discipline and they were no longer a nation. He dispersed them among, around, among the, uh, all over the world. And then the regathering from this time, 70 A.D. Now, that was a long time ago, 70 A.D. Phase one of their regathering from Four corners of the earth. This has never happened before. The only time that Israel has been regathered so far from all four corners of the earth is in May 1948, in our time. But that was phase one. They were, if you'll see down here in red, I have a little uh, color code. This is regathered in unbelief. The great masses of Jews in Israel today still are unbelief. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. Phase two of this regathering is going to be from the four corners of the earth and it's going to be at the second advent. This time it's going to be in belief. This is what's going to happen. All the unbelievers are going to be gathered in one way or another. The armies will be defeated in the valley of uh, Jehoshaphat and then all of the... Cities are going to be rubble and hailstones. They're all going to be into torments. And then he's going to gather his Jew, the Jews, his, his people again, back to Israel. This is going to be at the second advent. That's really the first stage. After this, after this part has been taken place right here, is when Antichrist, between this red and this green right here, is everything that we've seen so far. The, everything that we saw in Arnold Fruitenbaum's paper happens between here, May 1948, and the second advent. But he is going to regather them again, this time all in belief. Ezekiel chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, vividly describes this. We don't have time to go into this. But after, after this regathering, we could go down. We're not going to do it. I'm out of time. I'm already past time. But... 
We're going to look at Ezekiel 20, 30 through 38, and this gives it all in one verse about it. But we're not doing it tonight. We're already past time. So, there you have it. Uh, remember, there's going to be a real a sharp meeting of the deacons immediately following this. And I will hopefully see the rest of you all next time. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to study your mighty word, to realize that you have everything under control. You've even revealed to us the great and mighty things that you have planned. We're so thankful that we are on the winning side, that we are under your grace, under your protection and provision. And we pray that we will be so motivated to tell others that desperately need to know the truth and to learn about your grace and love. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.